Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Edith, the co-founder and CEO at LaunchDarkly, and we discuss how utilizing feature flags enables developers to deploy more often and with less stress. How LaunchDarkly can drop the mean time to remediate bugs down to the seconds, and how to establish a culture of autonomy. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I started programming when I was like nine or 10. It was back when uh, our library had a computer. And when I finished all my classes and all my work, I would just kind of be sitting there bored. So they would like show me out of the classroom and say, you know, go hang out in the library at the computer. Nice. So I completely aced uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego, like top level geography. And then also I taught myself how to program some basic um, just because there's only so much Carmen San Diego you can play. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I could play a lot. Um, I programmed in high school. um, And then my summer job when I graduated high school was actually really fun. I taught little kids how to program. Oh, awesome. So I taught little kids how to program logo and basic. And that was super fun because a really fun way to learn something even better is to teach it. Absolutely. If you have to explain the concepts or watch an eight or nine year old struggle with the language, you really understand it. Got an engineering degree. And then um, so that's, that's all the back back story. Got an engineering degree and then designed big systems. So designed uh, portal management systems, site management systems, got a couple patents on that and how to deploy big sites, and then became a product manager uh, because I was tired of building stuff that nobody wanted. <laughs> uh, it's really frustrating to be an engineer and spend a lot of time building something and then have nobody like it. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, so most recently I was... Uh, product director at TripIt, uh, which is a, an app for travelers. Oh, that's cool. So how did you come up with the idea for Launch Darkly and meet your co-founders and, and do it? Yeah. So the the first one is easier. I, I, uh, I met my co-founder in college. Awesome. Uh, John Kodamal, I think, was on an earlier podcast. Uh, he's a co-founder CTO. Yeah. But we both loved software. So he got his PhD from Berkeley. I was working as a uh, software analyst and then a product manager. And whenever we hung out, we were just end up talking about software, like uh, design patterns we saw, um, how waterfall was broken, patterns we saw about that made a good product manager versus bad product manager. And then kept seeing the same pattern that there was a need for a feature management system. Like uh, I, we had a one we built internally at TripIt. John, my co-founder, had one he'd use it at Lassian. But it was something that we thought should be its own product. That that way, uh, it would have more robustness and more functionality instead of being something that you relied on, but that wasn't sometimes very well maintained. Yeah, because it seems like something that would be so critical to your company, but. At the same time, not your core competency. So why are you? Why would you spend a ton of time on it? Yeah. So 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 to back up for a second, uh, Lunch Darkly, the, the company we co-founded, uh, 
it's a feature management system. Uh, so we help thousands of customers all over the world, like Intuit, Atlassian, IBM, push out features to their own customers and then manage who gets access to them. That's really cool. I saw from John Kotomal's episode with us, uh, he was talking a lot about your feature flags that you put in. And so my understanding of feature flags is like somewhat limited. I just know that it allows you to deploy some of your uh, features to a subset of your user base and also to activate and deactivate features that you're deploying. But I'm just not really sure on how that works or what it really looks like. Can you can you give me like an overview of feature flags? Yeah, that's, that's a great description, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so the old way of building software, which, which I grew up with, was that um, you had a version, basically. So like, I'm old enough that I remember like you actually had to print stuff onto a disk that would get installed. Right, yeah. So everybody, so when you had a release, everybody got the same features at the same time. And if there was a mistake, it was actually extremely expensive because you had to literally like reprint disks or try to get yeah. people. One of the big benefits of moving everything to the cloud is that you don't have to print disks anymore, which is better for the environment. Um, and also you can constantly update software. So that's, that's the first uh, way that you can get an advantage with feature flags. It's just, uh, it has to be online. Where, where feature flags then fit in is that um, if you can wrap functionality uh, with a feature flag, you can have it pushed out and live, but turned off for different people or turned on. Um, so for example, if, you have, uh, if you're a banking customer and you have a new feature that is performing really poorly out in the field, um, instead of having to run a release and push out new code, you can just turn the feature off. That's really cool. It, it sounds kind of like how a lot of uh, social media platforms are iterating their changes by just pushing out different features to subsets of the audience. Um, some people get this button, some people don't, uh, and then they see how those perform. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we, we didn't we did invent feature flagging. Like it's been a concept that's been around you know, for decades. Uh, what we try to do with feature management is make it easier to use. Um, you know, we have support for over 20 languages and then make it uh, something that you have a really nice UI where you can control them easily and then also have workflow and audits about who has turned what on when. Oh, one thing that John was talking about in the episode, because we also recently had uh, Dylan Etkin, the founder of Sleuth on the show, and he was talking about how like John really helped him start his company and how you launched Darkly and Sleuth really integrate together. And I was just curious, like, uh, do you have you worked much with Sleuth? Um, and you know Dylan? <laughs> yeah, I was, <laughs> I was laughing because um, uh, I am a very small uh, investor in Sleuth. Oh, cool! Yeah, nice. Um, a very small investor because uh, they Atlassian was one of launched Darkly's very early customers. And they gave us a lot of great feedback. So I got to know Dylan through that. Oh, cool. So I'm curious, it sounds like both you and your co-founder have really technical backgrounds. How did you decide between who's CEO and CTO at the start of the company? Oh, John is a much better coder than me. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was talking about how I coded when I was a teenager, but um, when I became a product manager, you know, I, I started focusing much more on talking to customers, figuring out what customers wanted and going down that path. 
And then even when I was at Concur, I realized that you could build something really cool, but if nobody knew that it existed, you needed marketing. Right. Which like when I was an engineer, I just completely ignored marketing. And I was like, well, the thing is so cool. It'll sell itself. <laughs> That's what everyone wants to think. Yeah. <laughs> Which is absolutely <laughs> not true. Like, um, you can have the best thing on the planet that's technically sound, but you still need like, that's because you have a good product manager and a good engineering team. And, but you still need to have marketing just to tell people about it. Absolutely. So what was it like? Um, do you have like a third co-founder that was like the marketing person or how did you find that at the start of the company? It was me. Um, so I'd done marketing at my prior startups. I'd gotten, I'd worked at a, a company called Easy Bloom, which was a plant sensor, and I'd gotten them from zero to a million dollars after launch. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. What, yeah. what is a plant sensor? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty much what it's, <laughs> it's, um, so this is a, you know, but this is back in 2007. I joined this eight person company as their product manager. And that's why I said that you could build something but not know how to market it. So they built this device where you would plug it into the soil. And then it had a thing on top that would measure uh, sunlight. And then you would unhook it and you'd shove it into your USB dock. And it would tell you the temperature, the light, and the humidity of that area. And what you should be doing with your plant. Nice. So like uh, whether you're underwatering it or overwatering it. So I joined when they pretty much gone through the beta as their first product manager and they're about to launch it. And I think they were just exhausted from having built the thing. So they didn't, when they launched it, we had all these expectations that we were getting around 10,000 units the first month. Instead, I think we sold around 20 or 30. Oh, wow. Oh, like not 10,000, not 20,000. Oh. oh, 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 I thought you meant thousand. <laughs> <laughs> no, we sold 20 to 30 units total. It was this huge, huge, huge flop. And they didn't, and, uh, and I was like, well, why don't we try to do some marketing? And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the nice thing about having it flop so badly and launch that whatever I tried, it couldn't get much worse. Right. Yeah. Like, it's a lot um, of freedom. Yeah. So I bought Google ads, which was super fun. Um, cause like I'd worked with marketing teams before, but I wasn't allowed to do them. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'd worked at a company before where we spent a million dollars a month on Google ads. So they, they don't let you touch them. But at the yeah. point, at the point <laughs> of company, uh, the CEO is like, here's the corporate credit card and, um, buy some ads and the ads did well. So I bought some more and then I cornered several key keywords for us. Um, and I figured out that. People, there. I, I call the two personas. There was a gadget guy who had some plants and really wanted to nerd out. Gadget guy or gadget gal. Yeah, yeah. And so I would buy a lot of keywords around like best gadget for plant. And then <laughs> the other yeah. thing that did really well was uh, people have gardening mothers and they don't know what to buy for them or gardening fathers. Right, yeah. So around Mother's Day or Father's Day, I'd buy a lot of campaigns around like what to get your mom. Anyway, so nice. got got that company from zero to a million from a combo of Google ads, Facebook ads. It was it was super fun. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. Uh, I don't think I've heard a story that drastic. 
surrounding <laughs> um just going from zero to 100 like that it was fun it was also the absolute worst time to launch a guarding product for whatever reason that we launched it in november when nobody, oh yeah nobody's growing anything yeah <laughs> well i mean it would be a good time to launch it today well, well now that everyone's just inside growing plants making their homes into jungles <laughs> yeah that company um there's other companies now that are doing similar things. That makes sense. Well, I want to circle back to Launch Darkly because I saw that you guys recently uh, actually published an O'Reilly book on effective feature management. And so I know you talked about like the whole company is feature management. What's what's that keyword effective do to, to that descriptor there? So I think feature flags are incredibly powerful. Um, you know, I've given talks all over the world extolling their virtues. Um, you know, they help you with kill switches so that if something is going bad, you don't have to run a new release. Um, they help you with graduated rollouts so that you can get stuff. If something is going bad, you can find it out with only 10% of your customers instead of 100. You could also do long-term segmentations. Like we have customers uh, in Australia where uh, if there's different territories, there's different legal requirements. And you don't want to branch your code base and have eight different code bases. You want to have one code base and then segment it with feature flags. So I think feature flags are wonderful. There's also the dark side of feature flags um, <laughs> that if used poorly, they could cause a lot of issues. How so? And so if you, for example, if you, like the number one mistake is like any other bit of uh, uh, code, if you put in a feature flag and you don't document what it does, uh, so if you have a feature flag that you, for good intentions, put in like six months ago, now you don't know what it does. Yeah. Uh, and then even worse, somebody else doesn't know what it does either, so they just turn it on or off. Right. And then you have a whole bunch of people out there with an app that might be broken now. Yeah. Like a true horror story I heard was um, uh, a B2B um, SaaS app where suddenly nobody could upload a document anymore. Oh, yeah, that sounds pretty important. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and like, so people were frantically calling customer support. People started calling the CEO. And then about four hours in, they figured out they had this old feature flag on a console that somebody had flipped, not knowing that it was the feature flag that turned off uploading documents. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds pretty extreme. So the, the O'Reilly book you guys published is like kind of an educational... Um, way to help people use them more effectively? Yeah. I mean, um, I'll, if you don't want to buy the book, I'll distill it down to um, treat, treat feature flags like a first-class object. Have a good naming convention. Don't name them something cutesy like user setting 17. <laughs> yeah. Don't name them something cutesy like fast food, like chicken nuggets. <laughs> yeah. real Have a good convention about what, what is on and off. Like if your default is that stuff is always off by default, make sure everybody knows that. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And then uh, a, a really big one is manage the life cycle. Like if you don't need a flag anymore, um, you should clean it up out of your code. I mean, I think all of that seems like it should be obvious to just have strong conventions in place that everyone's on the same page about. But it's, it's just crazy seeing how many companies just kind of don't have that kind of architecture in place. Like my brother is a software developer and 
uh, his company, had, their founder just had an idea for a company and he wasn't really a software developer. So he just kind of put it together with like the coding knowledge that he had. And that's just been like their code base for years. And whenever they hire someone new, it's like, all right, you got to spend three or four weeks just digging through this and understanding this monolith of what it looks like. And when you're dealing with a tool as powerful as a feature flag, it seems like you really can't have that hodgepodge together. You, you have to have a plan there. Yeah, which is, which is good. I mean, like, so one, one critique I hear about feature flags is like, so best practice is to think carefully about the feature and its boundaries and wrap it cleanly. And then people say, well, that seems like a lot of work that I have to do this clean wrap. It's like, well, what's the alternative? That you have spaghetti code that you don't understand? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know why anyone would want that. But <laughs> like I said, it's just, it, it seems like best practices that would just be getting implemented without you having to tell people. Um, but it's hard to remember. You do have to tell people to implement those kinds of best practices. Yeah, but we've, we've seen such incredible success with our customers. So we, um, we started seven years ago and um, now we have longtime customers who've been using this for two, three, four, five plus years. And to them, it's just habit. They're like, yeah, yeah. like, they're like every time we think about a new feature, a new sprint, we also think about how we're going to wrap it and how we're going to roll it out. Like it's just ingrained in our process of this is the way we built functionality. And yeah, they that's say, that's awesome. Yeah. And they say whatever they slip and they don't do that. They're like, why did we not do that from the start? <laughs> right. So what's it like when a client buys LaunchDarkly? What's, how do they measure the ROI on it? And like, how long does it take to see an ROI? Yeah. So there's different dimensions of ROI. Um, a big, so we, we're actually, uh, we look a lot at Dora metrics um, in terms of what our customers find useful so just one is just iterations like how how um how often do you push software right and if, if the answer is something like every three months that's 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 right now you usually a bad answer like yeah you might as well be printing discs <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so people look at how many iterations can they do um mean time to remediate is one that elastin looks at i don't really know what that means can you explain that yeah. Um, so mean time to remediate means if there is a defect in the field, um, how long does it take to remediate it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the way Atlassian looks at it is uh, the reason why they like feature flags so much is because um, if there is an issue in the field, you can just turn it off with a kill switch and then, you know, at your leisure, figure out what went wrong. The old way of doing it back when I was an engineering manager is if there was an issue in the field, you had to simultaneously figure out what the issue was and the fix for it and push out that fix. That's pretty crazy. Then you're talking, I don't know, that could be like a, a couple of weeks if it takes a long time to find the bug. Or or you would try to do a hot fix or a hot patch. Oh, yeah. Then you can end up creating more problems than solutions there. Yeah, I saw that over and over when I was an engineering manager is, um, you know, because you're just in this stress, the stressful place in your head of, I need to find a fix, I need to find a fix for this issue. And that's sometimes when you make the worst decisions. Right, right. So I want to put some numbers to this. Like how how drastically do you see mean times to remediate drop? Oh, down to down to minutes, if not seconds. Wow. 
Because if you're like, okay, this part of the front end is misbehaving, let's just turn that off and figure out what's happening. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, like a, another real one is um, something that happens a lot in banking is that you could uh, be interacting with the back end and flood it with queries. Banks still have a lot of mainframes. Yeah. Um, so we had a, a banking customer where they tested something before release, but they hadn't tested it with you know all of their users. So when all of their users started checking their balance, it started flooding this backend system and it was about to bring down everything. <laughs> um, so they just said, hey, let's just turn this feature off and figure out what's happening um, in like a, a slow, controlled way instead of having it you know, just crash. That's crazy. It sounds like a huge catastrophe avoided. Yeah. It's, uh, so that, that's another metric our, our customers really look at is developer happiness. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, they'll... they'll work better and you can you can actually quantify that like because they'll end up pushing out better products faster if they're having a good time and not frustrated trying to come up with hot fixes and stuff or or also the opposite is um what happens is that companies become more and more risk averse so you get in this pattern if there's a bad release it's like well let's test everything before we release yeah and then the issue there is that uh the more you test sometimes the less you find um, so like if you're testing a lot, uh, with data sets that are in the real world, you can test to get this false sense of security. And then when you push it out to the real world with real, uh, like it's my banking example, real banking backends, real, real external systems, that's when all the real issues happen. Right. Yeah. There's always something unexpected. So a while ago on the podcast, we had on this guy named Barack, who's the CTO of a company called Bridge Crew. They're like a, a developer tool that they shift cl- uh, cloud security left in the development process. And one thing that he mentioned that was like super powerful to me is that the further right it is, the mu- much larger team is required to manage the security. Like worst case scenario, there's a breach and then the entire company is all hands-on with the security. Whereas uh, if you have the security built into the code um, and the developer is doing just the best practices right then and there and are able to update it quickly, then it's just one person that's responsible rather than an entire organization. And it just, it kind of seems like launch darkly is in a way shifting control over deployment left so that it's, it's just giving more power to the developers to, to have that control. Is that, is that like an accurate comparison? Yeah, I'd say it's not just the developers, though. It's also other people in the org. So for the, the, the example I gave before about some sort of issue or bug that's threatening to bring down a system, the old way of doing it would be to have to call the developers at whatever time it was, maybe 3 a.m., and say, like, put this hot fix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, nobody makes good decisions at 3 a.m. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but with feature flags and feature management, um, you could have somebody in support turn it off. That's really cool. So they don't they don't have to have like a huge knowledge of the code base in order to operate the feature flags. Correct. Man, that's awesome. That's really smart. Yeah. <laughs> or you could even um what our customers are doing is linking it into external systems like a Datadog or a New Relic. And if you start seeing a lot of errors, you can just auto roll back items. And a developer still has to go in and find the root cause and fix it. Yeah. But you're decoupling the stress of finding the root cause well, this thing is also going poorly. You're saying, okay, this is going poorly, turn it off, then we'll figure out what's wrong. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. 
I want to talk a little bit about just continuous delivery in general, because I know you have a continuous delivery podcast. So I know something that I've seen on the LaunchDarkly website is like companies going from delivering once or twice a week, I mean, deploying once or twice a week to deploying a hundred times a day. What does that journey look like? Yeah. Well, I'll stand up front. Not everybody wants to deploy a hundred times a day. <laughs> like to sort of, to some of our customers, that seems absolutely terrifying. They're like, I don't, I don't actually want to deploy a hundred times a day. What I want to have is the ability to do that. Um, the ability to move that quickly and then also to bundle up everything into a set of features and push those out to customers. So I think uh, a, a vision people have of continuous delivery is just like everything goes from the developer's fingers right out to the customers, which is kind of terrifying at times. Yeah. If you're, for example, you're an airline, you want to be able to train people in new software. So we, we allow both. We allow the developers to push 10, 100 times an hour if they want, and then gate it with the feature flag and then get it to the right person when that person is ready for it. That's cool. So while the developer is pushing like 50, 100 times an hour, is that generally the developer's job to decide like, okay, it looks like it's going well, I'll flip this feature on for more people? Or is that like the product manager that's doing that? It depends on the org. You know, sometimes the developer likes doing it. Sometimes the developer says, hey, my, my, what I like doing is building. It's on yeah. the product manager to you know, monitor and get feedback, and I will give the controls to them. That makes sense. Would deploying like 100 times a day even be possible without feature flags? I mean, sure. I mean, anything is possible. I mean, you can. it's just very risky because that means that all of those changes are out there and you don't have a way to control them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I, I I don't see why anyone would would want to do that. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think it makes sense if you're a really early stage startup, like if you don't um if you don't have any customers yet. Right, right. Then you you're constantly wanting to push it so you can test it yourself and and see see if it works. Yeah, you know if you're like uh if you're like at the three or four person very early stage, and you don't have any customers, you don't really have much risk. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I want to hear a little bit more about your podcast. Uh, it's called To Be Continuous, right? That's right. Cool. How did that get started? Uh, so I am friends with Paul Bigger, who's the founder of CircleCI, which is a continuous integration platform. And we would just hang out and talk about software. And finally, I was like, hey, we should uh, we should record this. Nice. Uh, so it's fun. Uh, sometimes it's just the two of us talking about software. Uh, sometimes we get guests. Like I got on uh, Jocelyn Goldfine, who had worked at Facebook. And so she talked about Facebook and their engineering practices. Uh, we got in Sam Stokes, who worked at LinkedIn, and he talked about how some of LinkedIn's pr practices. Uh, one of my favorites was with um, a guy named Sam Guggenheimer, who recently retired from Microsoft and he just had so many stories about like life before agile, life after agile. Um, another favorite guest was Jeff Snover also at Microsoft where he just talked about how Microsoft moved from monolithic releases of like three to five years to being a lot more nimble and that journey. Um, so it's really fun. I, I look at it probably like you as a chance to talk with cool people about software. Yeah. 
So what have been some of the the coolest things or most impactful things that you've learned doing that? Oh, just stuff that surprises me. Uh, <laughs> I think one of the most radical ones we had was with a guy named Chris Gale, who'd been at uh, Yammer. And he talked about how they didn't believe in having a backlog. Uh, like, so like they just basically like burned their backlog and said, we will come up with new ideas every month. There's no, there's no point in having a backlog, which I found pretty radical. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, I'll, I'll uh, share one of the more interesting ones that we had on that was uh, storing data in DNA, this company called Catalog. And their whole thing is uh, because right now the reading and writing process is really slow. They, their industry that they work in is backlogs and like storing long-term data. And uh, they're, they're like kind of not replacing, but working in the same place as uh, like tape backups because it DNA can stay and keep the information soundly for thousands of years. So it makes total sense as like long-term storage platform. And they're just working on making it quicker to read and write. But another thing that was super interesting about that was DNA actually has some advantages for computing. Like you can do search searches much faster in a DNA data set than any computing data set because basically you can just uh, put like tracers and some enzymes that and mix that into your DNA storage batch and they'll start glowing at the point where uh, they're reacting with the exact data point that you're looking for. And then you can extract that, decode it. And um, so for massively massive data sets, it's like a really cool, innovative way to do that. That's super cool. Yeah, that's they call it um, so that there's hardware, software, and now wetware with uh, biological computing devices but i mean they are printing the dna it's synthetic it's not like they're not like extracting dna from anything and then changing it um yeah that was really cool and so another thing i was curious about your podcast is um how would you say it's like changed since the start because i know ours has just evolved so much in the past four years how has it changed it's funny so I started doing it six years ago and uh, we had the idea that we were talking about continuous delivery because LaunchDarkly is continuous delivery, CircleCI, Paul's company is continuous integration. And so we started recording our first episode and like we asked like, what is continuous delivery? And it was just like this dreadful hour of just us trying to be very like erudite and like, and it was just really dry. And I was like, I didn't like that at all. And Paul's like, that was really boring. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> why don't we start it? And um, it's like, you know what? The, it's like the first pancake. Yes. The first pancake is always a trial run. Yeah. It's like, okay, we got like the stilted one out of the way. Why don't we just talk like we're friends again? Yeah, and, exactly. And so we started like, hey, what do you like? What do you like about continuous delivery? What do you dislike? And suddenly it was a conversation and it was fun again, instead of just trying to define something. And then we started every episode like that. When we had a guest, we would ask them, uh, what do you like most about continuous delivery? And it was just really fun. Like we got, um, we got uh, Kevin Hendrickson, who's now uh, at Instacart. Uh, He'd been the CTO at a company called Accompli, uh, which got bought by Microsoft. 
and they were just all about continuous delivery. They're like, um, the more iterations we get, the faster we'll move. Basically, like because they're a startup, so they like they wanted to ship to the app store every week, which is fast. Yeah. So like, so like they just had their process like nailed. Like every week we ship, ship we ship on you know we ship on Fridays, and here's all the things we do to make it line up that way. And um, what I really liked about it is then he talked about how he tried to bring that same process into Microsoft. You know, might be more challenging. Well, the, the two things he said were really interesting. He said when 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 they got acquired by Microsoft, they said we're Microsoft now. They said we're the Microsoft Outlook team. We're not a company. And so that way it made them part of the company then. Yeah, that's cool. And then like whenever somebody pushed back on like, you know, um, like one of the constraints back then was uh, for tax reasons, they had to sh- put the software through Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico had a tax tax rate that's lower. And he's like, well, can we just automate that and like zip it down there and zip it back? This should have take two days. And it was just, it was just like everything he just said, this lens of like, do we have to do that? And if we have to do it, can we automate it? That was his mantra, mantra automate, automate, automate. And that, that really stuck with me in terms of something that I learned in terms of uh, when you're doing a startup, uh, you could build up a lot of cruft. Like, yeah. do, we, do we have to do it this way? Can we do it faster? Absolutely. I think that's just the modern way of, of looking at things. And if you're not looking at things through that lens, you're going to fall behind. I saw that your co-host works on a programming language called dark lang uh can you tell me a little bit about that i have told him that i think building your own programming language is one of the hardest things you can do so but he's really passionate about it it is basically a programming language that allows you to kind of deploy and control at the same time uh it is cool and in full disclosure i'm also a very small investor in his company nice Uh, it's really hard to get a programming language going yeah, that I mean, I think you're right. That does seem like one of the hardest things you can do. I mean, Google managed to get it going with Go. Um, Lunchdarkly, I think Paul told you is no, sorry. Lunchdarkly, John, my co-founder, built on Go, the programming language. Oh, cool. Nice. Well, before we get to wrap up here, I want to ask you a couple questions about leadership and your approach to leading at LaunchDarkly. So if you could design like the perfect leadership training program for your direct reports, what would be the most important concept or two? Oh, gosh. So we're a pretty pretty big company now. We're 300 people. Wow. So my direct reports are, you know, EVPs who run a department of 50 to 100 people. Right. Um, So... They're not um they're not first time managers they're experienced um something that was really helpful for me though when we were smaller was I took a course called uh, general management uh, a guy named Mike Deering here in the Bay Area offers it and it's basically like the title says to teach you how to be a better general manager he has coursework you know books to read in terms of like what it was like to run a railroad in the 1800s, um, what it's like to run a factory in the 1700s, and um, lessons learned from that to apply now in terms of like flexibility and optimization. And the, the book that stuck with me the most, though, was um, Andy Grove uh, wrote a book called um, basically around system thinking. And as an engineer, I love that. He said, your job as a manager is to build a system that works. 
And, you know, you should not have to be there uh, every day to like make sure that things happen. Your job is to build a system. And then if things go wrong to change the system or to optimize the system. So like, for example, um, a real example is our recruiting function. Uh, we have an experienced uh, head of HR who is a director of recruiting who runs the recruiting function. Like, great. Um, that's no longer something that I need to get involved in the day-to-day -day of like, um, you know, in the early days when we were eight people, you know, I was the recruiter. I actually mailed out, mailed, I emailed out all the job offers. Yeah. Um, you can't do that when you're 300 people. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. He, at our company, we're like 15 people and it's just at pretty much everyone who's like heading up a department, like. I head up production. We have a VP of sales that heads up sales. If if you're just in charge of that thing, you hire the people for for that thing. We don't have a HR yet, but that would be a really cool thing to have to uh, automate that part of the business. Like you're saying earlier, if uh, if we have to do something, can we automate it? <laughs> we have people recruiters who are incredibly talented and better than ever I was at recruiting. Yeah, that's awesome. So what would you say has been like the most impactful leadership lesson you've learned along the way founding Launch Darkly? Well, I think many. I think something I think about a lot is I might have done something in the past, but that doesn't mean I need to keep doing it. Like to go back to recruiting. Now we have full-time recruiters who are honestly better than I ever was. Your job as you scale is to hire people better than you are. Exactly. Yeah, that's we hear that over and over again. That is just the way to do it. Surround yourself with people smarter than you and keep your ego small so that <laughs> that uh it's not a problem when when they're smarter than you. It's a good thing. What I hear over and over again is like the A player managers are so excited when other people are better at their jobs than them because it's just like the it's, it's the best thing in the world to be able to just let go of stuff and step back yeah and um the way i did it three or five years ago like the company has changed and grown the world has changed and grown there are a lot better ways to do that stuff now for sure so how do you encourage like a culture at your company where people can work autonomously and, and take ownership over what they're doing yeah so one of our core values is learn and grow um it's explicit uh the, the whole value is we're building a place where you can learn and grow and the way I usually phrase that is we'll give you objectives and key results. Uh, and it's up to you how you achieve these. So, and then we also tell people it's okay if you make mistakes, as long as you learn from them. Like you're like, it's, it's fine to make a mistake. If you try something new and it doesn't work, that's how you learn. Exactly. So how do you, what does that look like in practice, like implementing and making people feel comfortable making those mistakes? Do you guys do like open postmortems or uh, like, how do you talk about it? Yeah, every, depending on the department, but every department we try to meet monthly or quarterly about what did we learn? What, mist what, what new things did we try? What worked? What did it? You know, because uh, if you don't try new stuff, you're never going to learn anything. However, not all that new stuff is going to work. I'd much rather people say, hey, like I tried this and it didn't work than have a culture where nobody ever tries anything because they're afraid. Absolutely. All right. Well, so I have one more question for you. What are you learning right now as a leader? What's, what's challenging you? 
it's I'm learning. I've learned over the past 18 months how to operate in a remote world. It's hard because a lot of the, the advice you get about running a remote company involves some sort of gathering together. Yeah. You're like, even if you're all remote, fly everybody in. And it's like, well, that hasn't been possible. So learning on the fly how to run an all remote company. And there's still, I think, lessons I'm iterating on. You can't recreate real life over Zoom, but how do you still build solid teams? One thing that we've noticed at our own company is the number of meetings have, have crept up. And I think that's because if you have a physical office, there's a cost to a meeting. Like sometimes it's like physically how many people can fit in that room. Yeah. Uh, I also have Harbaugh's Law of Meetings, which is the number of meetings you have swells to the number of conference rooms and no bigger. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, literally, like if you have to book a room, you're like, oh, I can't get a room. Uh, never mind. Let's just handle this at our desks or like maybe we don't need a meeting. Um, with Zoom, you basically have this explosion of meetings because there's infinite rooms. Exactly. And that's like a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah. So now we're trying to like kind of get back down to like, okay, what needs to be a meeting? What could be an email? For sure. So uh, what does what does the future hold for LaunchDarkly? What are you really excited about? Oh, gosh, so much. So we have thousands of customers worldwide. I love hearing their stories about how their lives are getting better. I think, however, that we should have tens of thousands of customers. Like I think everybody in the world who builds software should be using LaunchDarkly. Um, so that that makes me super excited about all the customers that we can still reach. I have literally seen how it changes developers' lives for the better. You know, they say they're happier, they get better sleep, their weekends are back because they don't have to worry about bug fixes, and that, that makes them more productive. So for LaunchDarkly, I'm excited about getting more customers. Uh, continuing to grow within an org of helping not just developers, but also product managers, marketers, sales, finance, just making everybody's lives better. So our mission statement is uh, software powers the world, lunch darkly powers all teams to deliver and control their software. Nice. I truly believe that, that all teams should be using this. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.